I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So I wanted to start out this week by saying a big thanks to all our listeners. This month, we're marking our one-year anniversary as a podcast, as well as our 50th episode. And to celebrate the occasion, Thomas has offered to do a remote home energy audit for a lucky listener. So we're going to have a drawing. And to enter the contest, all you need to do is to send us a note through our website or send us a direct message through social media. Just in the subject line, put Climate Optimism, your name, and your email address. And we'll do the drawing on Friday, September 9th. Thomas just got voluntold. (laughs) Happy to help, Todd. Happy to help. Well, it has been a hell of a long time coming, but as most of you know, the U.S. has finally passed some real climate legislation. With this historic progress, we decided it was important to step back and spend an episode focused on you know, how it's going to achieve the emission reductions it says it is, how it's going to impact consumers, what you know got added to keep a senator and aspiring coal baron Joe Manchin happy, and uh, what work still remains. You know, it, it blows me away because I was looking earlier this week and actually came across some environmental organizations that had taken an opposition position on the bill. And I get that the bill's not perfect, but it just blew me away that there were folks that were sort of saying, we can't support this when it's literally like our last chance to get meaningful legislation passed. How about you guys? How do you feel about the, uh, the U.S. finally doing something on climate? Well, I was surprised that it happened. I didn't hold out much hope that anything was going to get done, so I thought it was pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, I, I know that everybody didn't get what they wanted, of course, but it's hard to let the perfect be the enemy of the good in this case. Uh, so, you know, I'm I'm pretty stoked. Yeah, and no, I think it also encourages all other countries to sort of get on the bus now and, and start moving in that right right direction. And once you know, we all start heading there, we'll realize that it's not so difficult after all. And hopefully a lot of these uh, targets will get increased and, and, and we'll go even harder and faster to achieving the goals. That's a hope. I like that optimism, Thomas. Well, and, and speaking of uh, optimism, uh, for this week's Reason for Hope, we've got a, uh, a source of optimism down under. You want to uh, take us through what's what's happening? Yeah, we've sort of been running a bit of a similar path to you where We've been arguing about climate change for the last 30 years or so in Australia, but uh, finally those climate wars have come to an end and uh, the House of Representatives here have passed a bill to reduce our carbon emissions in Australia by 43% on uh, 2005 levels by 2030. There are also provisions for 2050. But it is important to keep in mind that this is a framework. So it's, it's more around the reporting and the responsibility of government organizations to set mechanisms that enable us to achieve these set targets and and less so heavy on the detail that uh, there evidently is in your climate bill. So those specifics will come later, but it's now, uh, well, it will be once this is passed the Senate, which is pretty much a sure thing, a legal framework that will force uh, the country to move in the right direction regarding CO2 emissions. Is it enough? 
No, not not yet. But that's the beauty of the way this has been structured. The forty three percent is a is a flaw, and the Greens worked hard to get mechanisms in this bill that allow us to ratchet that up as we move you know towards those climate targets. Yeah, it's good to hear. I mean, especially that there's a mechanism to make things more aggressive down the road. Because you know, I mean, like this progress in the U.S., it's it's good, but it's it's not quite there yet. So we're going to need to do more. But yeah, exciting. We got two big countries making steps in the right direction. So speaking of the Inflation Reduction Act, jumping right in here, how much do we expect the bill to cut emissions, which is the important thing, right? Yeah. So all of this is kind of done via modeling, and there's a number of analyses that have been performed. The two models that you know that I spent time looking at were from the Rhodium Group and an organization called Energy Innovation. And to simplify things, because their analyses have like high and low, you know, and middle scenarios, we're just going to focus on middle of the road. And basically, if you take energy innovations, middle of the road scenario, they're forecasting that it could be a 39% reduction. So nearly 40% in emissions by 2030. And if you take the rhodium group assessment, it's almost the same thing, 40% by, by 2030. And Obviously, there were things already in play. You know, there are already states and and certain federal actions that were in place. But this brings us another ten to fifteen percent cut in emissions in total emissions by twenty thirty, which is massive. And you know, it's like the Australian bill. That's not enough to get us where we need to be. We've you know pledged to the international community uh, a fifty to fifty two percent cut by twenty thirty. But you know, it's it's a big step in the right direction. Just as an aside, it's I don't know why all these countries are cutting it so close. I mean, it's like we know we need to make at least a fifty percent cut, and you know, it's just ironic to me that everybody's sort of inching their way up, and and it's like just barely getting to fifty percent instead of trying to aim for something like sixty or more. Yeah. So how how is it going to do it? What are the pieces or the sectors that will have the cuts? Yeah. So it's really about the power sector. You know, the vast majority of the cuts come to our electricity sector. And as some folks may be aware, you know, the power sector is the second biggest source of emissions behind transportation here in the U.S. They're both roughly about, you know, a quarter of our emissions, give or take. And so it's getting those reductions in the power sector. It's all about tax credits. So extension of existing tax credits for renewables, you know, additional credits for things like energy storage. You know, extension of tax credits for for nuclear that keep you know new existing nuclear plants online longer, hmm. and and it's got some other perks that aren't necessarily emissions focused. Like it has what's called an energy community bonus, where developers would qualify for additional tax credits if the facilities are located in areas that are next to current or past fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm-hmm. There's an environmental justice bonus. So if you're, you know, locating your facilities next to low-income communities, there's additional tax benefit there. So yeah, roughly three quarters is from the power sector. And then there are, you know, additional chunks, about 10% coming from carbon removal, you know, funding of direct air capture and incentives for carbon storage in in forests and agriculture. You've got about 10% of the impact coming from carbon capture facilities in, in industry. So that's, you know, putting carbon capture on, let's say, 
a cement manufacturing plant or a steel plant. And then the final area where we have some you know reductions are in the transport side with the electric vehicle credits, the existing and then new credits for used vehicles. And that, you know, we're talking about the impact of this bill, about 3% of the impact is is in the transportation side. So kind of, again, three quarters of it is the power sector, roughly 10 or so in, you know, carbon removal industry, about 10 and then around 3% coming from, from transportation. So is the 3% number which seems kind of small is it because what what's in the bill isn't really doing that much to to impact the transportation sector overall or is it because we're already you know kind of headed in that direction and doing so well with like people buying EVs that this this bill just isn't going to do that much more to kind of impact that is that known yeah that that was a head scratcher for me too because i expected when you know we looked at the analysis that there would be a big chunk of the, you know, emission reductions would come in transportation. But I think the reality of the smaller impact is is sort of, you know, twofold or maybe threefold. One, this has some mineral and battery sourcing requirements hmm. that in the near term will actually slow down the uptake because you're going to have, let's say, you know, you're going to have the big car companies having to shift to ensure that they have, you know, meet these domestic sourcing requirements. Right. The other thing is cars have a long operating life. And so, you know, vehicles may be out there 10, 15 years. So even though these are some good incentives, it takes a while for them to really, you know, make the dent. And and then I mm-hmm. think the third thing is the one that you pointed out, which is we're already on that trajectory. And so this is helping accelerate it a little bit, but we're, you know, we're already headed in that direction because of the, you know, big drops in the cost of electric vehicles and, you know, the uptick in, in adoption. Right. I think another thing to point out there too is that you know a lot of this is modeled, right? And you know we know that all these adoption curves follow S curves and we're just at the moment where there we we're seeing at least 50% per annum growth. I mean, some years Tesla's growing at more than 80% per annum. So I think we're going to surprise ourselves with how rapidly that uptake occurs over the next few years and I'd be very surprised if by 20 30, you might have to quote me on this, but we're not seeing a sort of 80% plus um, sales rate of electric versus internal combustion vehicles. Hey, I'd, I'd be stoked if that's what we hit, you know? Yeah, um, heck yeah. And, and, I, and I think you're right. I mean, generally speaking, these modeling, you know, they're, it's not to say necessarily they're being conservative, but there are certain kind of concrete things that they're having to put into their tool. And, you know, yeah, I mean, if you look everywhere, you can see that things are beating forecasts in terms of EV adoption. So we're talking here about electric vehicle credits. And I think, you know, there may be a lot of folks wondering, well, how is this bill going to impact, you know, consumers? And Todd, I know you did some research on kind of the different elements of this could that could impact a, you know, typical American. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot here. One of the first things is uh, air quality, and it could cut you know, air pollutants from the power sector up to 82%, which is, you know, pretty staggering. Yeah. And that, which could avoid, you know, close to 4,000 premature deaths, 100K asthma attacks annually by 2030. So just huge. When we talk about EV tax credits, there's still a $7,500 credit, but they did eliminate the manufacturer quota. So some of you might remember that there was a cap on how many vehicles 
I can't remember if it was 250,000 vehicles or something like that. If you manufactured, once you got to that cap, any vehicles after that no longer, you know, could apply for the credit. So Tesla and GM vehicles will now be eligible again, which is, which is huge. And, but there are some limits on that. So based on your income, uh, any individual making over 150K won't be able to apply and a family would be 300K. So, but that's pretty high, right? So there, there's going to be a yeah. lot of folks that are going to be able to apply for that credit. And there's also some limits on the total cost of the vehicles themselves. So uh, for a car, it's 55K, um, which, you know, I suppose you get some of these Teslas with a couple options or something, you know, you're probably getting near that, that 55K, which, you know, it sounds outrageous to spend 55K on a car to me, but you know, that's what they, they cost <laughs> these days, I guess. But one of the things I thought was kind of a bummer, and Thomas mentioned this, that they didn't include you know, uh, electric bikes in this bill, which is kind of a bummer. And then they have the cap for SUVs and trucks up to like 80K, which kind of, you know, you could say kind of moves backward to what we're trying to do. Uh, It seems like they're kind of incentivizing you to buy large vehicles, which, you know, are more inefficient. And it just seems like that might be moving in the wrong direction. It seems like we want, you know, we want to incentivize people to to go smaller, as small as you can, right? And, And get get more bang for your buck out of uh, energy and, and, you know, efficiency. So I thought that was kind of a bummer. Used cars, you can get 4K or 30% of the vehicle cost, uh, but that's cars for selling less than 25K. And I think they have to be over two years old as well. So just some things to think about if you're looking to buy used, but still $4,000 is is a good chunk. Yeah. Uh, I know you talked about some of the stipulations on the manufacturing and, and the, you know, sourcing the materials for the batteries. And that's that's something else I think we should talk about here. You know, the, the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which represents about 98% of cars and light trucks sold in the U.S., their estimate is that 70% of electric vehicles currently sold would not be eligible for the tax credits upon passage of the bill. Now, I don't know if that number's high, but I could definitely tell that GM and Ford and Tesla weren't as concerned about these stipulations, but some of the foreign automakers obviously were were fairly upset right um i it's also this that stipulation came from none other than uh you know our old pal you know joel joe uh black coal rolling mansion and he's the one that really put this in the bill and he basically said you know i don't believe we should be building transportation on the backs of foreign supply chains and i'm not going to do it and so but i think i think I've realized what Joe's deal is. And I think the guy has like a digging fetish, right? Because I think they were like, how are we going to get Joe to sign off on this bill? And they were like, Joe, we'll, we'll have mines. And he said, mines? I'm, I'm behind it. I think this guy like clasped a coal shovel at night when he goes to bed. He's just like mumbling to himself about digging somewhere. I think he's just, I think he has a digging fetish. <laughs> I think that's how they got him. Yeah, I was I was sad to see, and we'll get to it, some of the stipulations that made it in. But, you know, this is all about compromise and obviously, you know, having getting rid of the cap on vehicles and having a used credit, used car credit. You know, those are those are big benefits. And I'm not saying that buying American isn't good. Right. Like, I mean, I think that's what he was trying to push for. Right. Was having this stuff made in America, buying American. And that's all good. 
but you know, to me, it seems like it's good for, it really is kind of good for Tesla, Ford and GM and probably bad for just about everybody else. Yeah, I, I think the other part of that, though, too, is, I mean, global supply chain stability, the fact that so much of the uh, anode and cathode material, especially, is coming out of, call a spade a spade, it's coming out of China, right? And mm-hmm. and the US is very concerned about that. If I mean, you know, we had a <clears throat> recent bit of a trade war with China, and, and they just turn around and they'll shut down all imports or exports of one product or another, and and that that could make the U.S. manufacturing situation extremely difficult if they gear up for production locally of electric vehicles without having uh, the supply chain to back it for the battery manufacturing. So I, I think in the short term, sure, it's going to create a few problems, and and especially for these foreign automakers who are going to have to sort of drop out of the race. But I think in the long term, it will create a more stable manufacturing sector in the US uh, for the supply of batteries and electric vehicles. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the fact is they can still sell cars. They're just not going to be able to, you know, get the credit, which isn't going to make them as a competitive, but maybe they'll find other ways, you know, to be competitive. I don't know. And on the minerals side of it, that I think there are allowances for uh, mining of those minerals in, um, <clears throat> I guess, a more acceptable range of countries. Uh, Australia was one of the uh, countries included on that list, but as you can probably imagine, uh, China wasn't. Sure. Yeah. So, so it sounds like good news on the electric vehicle side of things. Bummer we didn't get bikes in there. Definitely a, a future improvement that needs to be made. I know there was also some, you know, clean energy credits that got extended for like the residential side, and then some energy efficiency stuff as well. Yeah, there were some energy credits and and rebates and. In these cases, they're now extended through 2034. It applies to wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, and uh, energy storage now as well. Um, and there will be a th- start out with the possibility of a 30% credit, uh, which will eventually decline to, t- to 22% by, by 2034. And on the rebate grant side, you know, they could help you cover the cost of an installation of equipment. And it was going to increase the value of the existing tax credits and create new programs for homeowners it, to cover things like insulation, efficient doors, windows, heat pumps. And obviously, the, it was incentivized uh, the lower your income was. I, I did a some of the, the rebate, especially on like the, the 8K on the heat pump. I think if you were, the rebates weren't available if you're earning above 150% of your area median income. And I don't know how they determine what your area is, but I I did it for Clackamas County, which is where I live, which is 82K a year. So if you make over 123K, uh, you wouldn't be eligible for the rebate. I don't know if that's how they get the numbers, but my only concern with that was like, well, it kind of seems like if you make enough money to own a home, <laughs> you might be, you know, because like it takes a lot of money to own a home around here. So, right, you know, it could potentially exclude a lot of people from from those rebates, but I, I assume they f- they figure if you're making above a certain amount, you should just be able to afford to, to put in a heat bump. Probably, I guess is the is the idea behind that. But I mean, it's definitely good that they're incentivizing it for for lower income folks. I think that's good. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I think you know, in some ways, it's like you want to if folks can afford it, you know, you don't want to subsidize that. But I think there's also sure. this, you know, it's all about incentivizing the right behavior. And so, in some ways, it's like making it really cheap to, you know, 
make your home energy efficient is a good thing, whether it's for somebody with low income or high income, right? Because we know we want all homes to be, to be energy efficient. And the folks who are making more money are living in the bigger houses that consume more energy. But right. Yeah. I thought it was exciting though. You know, you're talking about the, you know, combination of tax credits and rebates for, for energy efficiency. And then that the, in addition to that, the clean energy credit, you know, for that applies to wind, solar, et cetera, that that got, you know, that got extended as well. So you've kind of got both the ability to be subsidized for putting, you know, energy generation equipment on your house, right? Solar panels. And then Mm -hmm. you're also getting incentivized to make your home more efficient. So it requires less energy. So it's really both sides of the, the equation, which I thought was good. Thomas, I don't know how it is or how we, you know, this reality now compares to like Australia, but it, it's nice to see the U.S. really, you know, putting some emphasis and dollars on the residential side of things, you know, both on the energy efficiency and, and clean energy, because, you know, the reality is homes are a huge, you know, part of our carbon footprint. Yeah, I, I think uh, having that 30% tax credit for the solar side of things and the battery storage is huge. That's what's driven Australia to be the number one uh, residential solar installer in in the world um so that mechanism tied also to the batteries is going to be a great step in the right direction because you will get to the situations that we're facing in australia where your residential solar penetration will be so high that you end up having to curtail that generation which is really disappointing because you shouldn't have to do that because we need as much as we can but it's about having that available at the right time of day and that's typically in the morning and evenings in these residential situations so the storage side of it, great, fantastic that you've you've taken that step because we haven't here yet. In fact, our residential solar mechanism that currently exists, our STC program, is getting ramped down every year till it expires by 2030. However, with the recent lower house passing of this uh, new climate bill in Australia, hopefully those incentives get reinstated in Australia. So, you know, I think as a listener, we've probably thrown a lot of like numbers and, you know, stats your way. And the reality is it's going to take a while to to digest this. I think the good news is, is this works its way, you know, through into implementation. It will be much cleaner and simpler. Um, but we will have links to a couple of good articles on our website. If you want to kind of dig into, you know, the potential credits that are going to be available on the, on the efficiency side, the electrical vehicle side, or, or clean energy side for your home. So I think as we rightfully celebrate the, you know, the good news with this climate bill, you know, it does beg the question, what are the paths to get us to where we need to be that, that 50% cut by, by 2030? And, you know, reading through some of the analyses, it's clear that, you know, there's more to be done in the building sector, the industrial sector, you know, things like cement and steel manufacturing, and, you know, we need to be able to accelerate that electrification of our transportation sector as well. And in my humble opinion, I think while, you know, I don't know how politically palatable it is at this point, that what we really need is, is a, you know, a carbon tax. Um, you know, we've talked about a, a fee and dividend mechanism on this podcast before, but when we're talking about things like, you know, passenger vehicles, if it's still cheap to continue to, you know, put gasoline in your car and drive it, there's going to be less of an incentive for people to move more quickly to electric vehicles. So yeah, there are you know, other sectors that need attention aside from the power sector. And I think in my mind, the cleanest way to potentially do that is, is through something that puts a price on carbon because 
at the end of the day, that's really what we want to eliminate. And as long as it's, you know, free to put carbon up in the air, um, yeah, it's going to be hard to, to squeeze out those, those remaining emission reductions. I don't know, Thomas, what are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the building sector, I think can still have a, a, a big role to play in these reductions and there's a lot of opportunity left there. And I am of the opinion that that needs to be driven by changes in the building codes. Uh, I haven't found a lot of detail in there yet. Um, there is some talk of rebates around insulation, but it's it's about how do we go forward building houses for the climate that is going to be here in 40 years' time. So I, I, I really think that um, we need to be really ratcheting up the requirements around new building structures and offering incentives and rebates for those to retrofit existing structures so that their energy use is reduced regardless of what the source of heating or cooling is for the, the building itself. Yeah, and that's a good point in the building sector too. I mean, there's, I think, tends to be more focus or often more focus on on you know new buildings, whether those are residential or, or commercial. And, you know, the reality is the, the vast majority of our buildings are existing buildings. So we need to be able to move those from, you know, in some cases, buildings that are very inefficient to ones that are extremely efficient. And to your point, are set up for a climate that we're going to have down the road, you know, not the one that we have today. So back to Joe Roland Cole Mansion, how much did he really impact this bill and, and what problems did he cause? So... There were some, you know, stipulations around, you know, permitting for, you know, things like pipelines. The biggest sort of concession was making more offshore and onshore leases available, fossil fuel leases on federal land. And, you know, at face value, that's obviously not a good thing. We don't want to be putting in any additional fossil fuel infrastructure. But in looking at the analyses that have been done, the good news is by and large, the impact of having more land available to lease for, you know, extraction of fossil fuels is small. And, you know, energy innovation in their analysis estimates that for every ton of additional emissions that come from these leases, there's 25 tons in emission reductions. So, you know, I know, you know, there's a lot of folks that are kind of focused in on, you know, how this enables additional fossil fuel infrastructure, and again, it's, it's definitely not a good thing. But but when you look at the the numbers, uh, the impact is going to be relatively small. So you know, from my perspective, you know, he extracted some concessions, and and it's, if that you know is what it took to get his vote to get all these good things across the finish line, then it was you know worth the sacrifice. All right, thanks, Joe. <laughs> and so I guess that leads to our you know, the question we always ask, which is, what can we do? And Thomas, I know you've got some ideas given the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I think it. we can do a lot at a personal level, like to basically develop a plan for how, how can we make the most of these opportunities that are going to be arising as a result of this act? How do we plan on utilizing some of these incentives to better insulate our house, get rid of that gas water heater and replace it with a carbon dioxide heat pump? How do we encourage our next door neighbor who is about to buy some fancy Mercedes to go and buy an electric Tesla instead? So uh, I, I think it's it's one of those things where there are things that we could be delaying or there are things that we can do as soon as this bill is enacted 
that will allow us to make these carbon dioxide emission savings immediately because the sooner we can do it, the less emissions that go up in the air, the, the more likely we are to achieve the 1.5 degree targets. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and again, we'll have links on our website to articles that help kind of break down the, the menu of incentives that this bill produces. But yeah, Thomas, I agree. I mean, everybody should take the time to get familiar with kind of what's out there. And then, yeah, look at your upcoming purchases and, and try to leverage what's, what's in this bill to you know, have the benefits be realized sooner. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Come back next week when we'll be digging into the topic of trees and their power to help us achieve climate targets. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Oh,